0: So if you'll join with me in today's scripture reading, this is from Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. My name is Justin, and I'll be here this week and next, and I'll be doing both the music part and the talking part. Um. This is the talking part. It might be confusing because it's the same guy, but I swear it's a different thing entirely. Uh, I love being here, and I say this every time I'm here. um, I get to be kind of a cousin of sorts. I wish I was more like a brother. I'm just not here enough. Uh, I get to be kind of a cousin of sorts uh, in the Regan family. I've been around for a long time. My friends and I planted a church in Concord back in 1998, um, and we were in conversation with the team of folks uh, who were planting this uh, way back when. So I've literally been around off and on uh, since this church was given to Oakland uh, as a great gift, and it is. It's, It's a great gift to the city of Oakland, and it's a great gift to me. So I feel very much at home here. You'll vibe that. You're like, he seems awfully comfortable for being a guest. Um, I'm not a guest. I've been here longer than you. So, um, and I'm thrilled to come in now. These, these two Sundays, if you talk to folks who do church things, who like make Sundays happen, because I think we're all there at this point, like church is not what happens on Sunday. Somebody say amen. Like this is a gathering and we come to the, but like we are the church. Somebody say amen. Like we're way past all that. But if you're part of the team of people, the group of people who, uh, or you've been around long enough, you you know, that like these two Sundays, the Sundays, the Sunday after Christmas and then the Sunday after New Year's, these are harder. Um, And I like that I get to be here now because, like, if you're here right now, you mean it. I'm thrilled. Also, and I'll continue to say this to you and and to, to my folks in Concord and otherwise, like, in general, If you're showing up on Sundays, online, in person, at this point in time, at this point in the cultural trajectory, uh, the country in which we live, if you're showing up, you mean it. If you're showing up now, receive that, even now, as evidence of a really good work that has begun in you. It's an act of worship. To just show up. Somebody say amen. But we don't just worship because it's a responsive thing. We worship because we recognize as an act of worship. This is part of what it means. We recognize that there is a work begun in us that we're a part of that is bigger than we are. Of which we only know a part. So I'll just start this morning saying this is where I'm going with the teaching in large part. Is the work begun in you that you will bear witness to by showing up here or here. It's a good, true, and beautiful work, and God intends to finish it because God only starts things that are good. Somebody say, "Amen." And God finishes everything God starts. God only starts things that are good, and God only finishes. And God finishes things that God starts. So the good, true, beautiful work that has begun in you that you are bearing witness to this morning will be finished. Uh, a number of years ago, when um, like I told you, I planted that church. We got, I got invested. I'm not a numbers person. I was, a, I was an English major with a philosophy minor. I went into college thinking I was going to do theater. And then it turns out I'm 5'6". Um, and that doesn't look good on stage. Um, <laughs> all the female leads are like this. And um, I, I, I English major, philosophy minor, like I'm not a numbers person, but I got into, into, into doing church stuff. I sort of fell into that. Well, Some other time I'll tell you that story. And we started hearing all these numbers. This team of folks, we planted this church and like, you know, people aren't coming to church anymore. We're like, well, <laughs> we are. <laughs> and they would throw numbers out there. Like sometime, this is like, yeah, I don't know how many years ago this is, but this, at, the, at that point it was like the the population in America had grown just in the States. The population in general had grown by somewhere between 11 and 13%, depending on how you measure it. And the church attendance during that same period of time had fallen off between 25 and 27 percent and that, they said that trend's going to continue I was like wow that's fascinating those numbers continue to continue that in that direction like it's it's a, it's a heck of a time for you and I to call ourselves Christians for you and I to be church attenders and I will say again I believe so strongly that that is evidence of a beautiful work that's begun in you And so I don't show up this morning just because I've got something to say. I don't show up this morning just because, like, I'm being paid to be here. I show up this morning because I really do believe that God's doing a beautiful thing, and I'd like to be a part of it. And even what I do this morning, I've prepared a teaching. I've practiced these songs. I've done these songs a lot, so. I don't show up ever anymore thinking, like, well, I've got enough to bring to the table, and I can inject that into a space, and it'll be rad. That's actually never the way it works. I can bring the best of what I've got to the table at any point, specifically this morning, and it just wouldn't matter if I was not speaking into trying to encourage and inform a good work that God has already begun here. That's the ballgame. The ballgame is that God started something in you. That's what makes it worth showing up for me and for you. So this morning's message I've entitled, Missing Legos and the Hope of Christ in You, it is, in a sense, for me, a really good follow-up message to, to the Christmas message, the Christmas story. And, I, I, you know, I was here a few weeks ago, and Pastor Nate was sharing about the, the wild nature of this story. And we kind of get into it a little bit off and on. We're, we are somewhat inoculated to, like, the wildness of a teenage girl giving birth to God. That's just bonkers, friends. It's nuts, and the reason you know it's nuts is because of how hard it is to be a teen mom still. Somebody say amen. Like, you want to get back in touch with the the gospel? Hang out with the people that the gospel tells stories about, teenage moms. And believe that Jesus Christ is showing up in those spaces. That'll change your life. It's wild to think that God decided to show up that way really specifically. How is this pinnacle moment in history going to happen? God, like, is born, he's a psycho, and then he's because of living in a baby, there's a belly, and then it's got to be fed and breastfeeds and poops on himself. Like, this is like, that's bananas. It's ludicrous. Born to a teenage mom. That hope shows up in the world and does not conquer immediately. Somebody say amen. Jesus needed to have his butt wiped. He was a baby. Hope showed up and said, I'm going to place myself in your hands and you will become someone who can care for and carry hope. That's how hope shows up. Hope shows up in a way that says you're part of this story. In fact, you don't just get to bear witness of it. You're an integral part of the story because the entire thing hinged on this moment. The whole thing hinged on this moment. Where an angel of the Lord shows up, talks to this like 14, 15, maybe 16 year old girl, and says that God Almighty is going to birth Himself into the world through you. And she, watch me now, she could have said no. And she said yes. But when she gave the yes, is what she said. She goes, I don't really get it. Really? How's that gonna work? That's what she said. How's that gonna work? And then she said, well, let it be with me as you say. I don't really understand it. That math doesn't add up for me. But if you're saying this is how this is going to go, okay. Many, many years later, this apostle named Paul, writing to a group of people who were living into this story, used this phrase. He said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not what, he, what he didn't say was Christ, the hope of glory, and you're just along for the ride. What he said was, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is what we get in the Mary story. Christ quite literally in her, the hope of glory. So the message I'm bringing you this morning is one that picks up on that. What's actually actually look like for you and I? What are the challenges? What are the realities of being a person in whom hope is born, who carries hope in our own lives and to our neighbor's? If you go to this first frame, it's a message, it's a story that, um, well, this whole talk, it was actually kind of birthed in me a long, long time ago when I was in high school. I'm 48. I'll be 48 in a few days. And um, I was younger when I was in high school, and that's how math works. And I was, if you can possibly imagine, uh, I was a bit of a loud mouth. And I was in trouble a lot for talking. Um, in fact, at one point, I was in trouble in... Uh, a speech class for talking. That's a high bar to clear, is to be in a class about talking and be talking too much. Uh, But there I was, um, cracking a joke to the kid behind me. And uh, Mr. Ross, who was the teacher, said, Mr. McRoberts. And I knew the tone. I knew that, like the whole thing. I'd been there before. I'd been in trouble. So I I pick up my bag, start walking towards the door. And he says, "Um, just one second, excuse me, if you don't mind coming up here. So I walk up, look at my backpack on my shoulder, just the one shoulder, because I was trying to be cool still, before I knew how much it would cost my back long-term to wear a backpack that way. Uh, and he said, you can set your bag down here. So I set my bag down next to the table to do his desk. I said, if you just stand right here, there's a like the little raised area where we would do our like speech presentations. He said, if you stand right here, and he walks off and he goes to this um, like it was it's like a closet off the side of the classroom, and normally he would go in there. He'd get like podiums or stands, or he would get like little props or whatever for for us to hold and practice our presentations. And he walks out. He carries out this large inflated cactus. It was like yay high on me. This it was good size, infl- and it was already inflated. And he set the cactus down next to me, and then he walked out and he sat down in my seat in the front row. I sat in the front row because I was in trouble a lot. Sat down in the front row, said, okay, Mr. McRoberts, you like to entertain? The floor is yours, you have five minutes. (laughs) And I totally froze, just stood there, silent. Because it's one thing to steal someone else's moment. It's another thing entirely to have your own and have to make something of it. Somebody say amen? I said, Mr. McGrubbs, you have five minutes. And I just stood there dead silent for I don't know how long. I don't know. Finally, the kid I was cracking a joke to before, his name is Dave, Dave Meany. Dave Meany goes, oh, come on, man. Just pretend like you're in the desert. It's just a cactus. At which point, Mr. Ross said a thing that over the course of many, many years, would quite literally reorient the way I see my life. He said, no, it's not. And they looked me square in the face. He said, It is what you make of it. It is what you make of it. And it took a minute, but maybe for the last two minutes of that five, like it wasn't a cactus, it was a space alien, it was a tiny rocket ship, it was a long lost friend. Because it wasn't a cactus, was it? It wasn't. It's a piece of plastic. Molded piece of plastic with like nasty, (laughs) nasty high school teacher breath in it. Imagine how that thing smelled inside. That's just a disgusting idea. That's what it was—a piece of plastic with like with teacher breath. That's what it was. What I've come to recognize over the course of many, many, many years is that pretty much nothing in the world is what it is. I hate that phrase. Anybody with me? I hate it. It is what it is. I can't stand that phrase. Because pretty much nothing in the world is what it is. If you're a person of color in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, and people looked around at the systems in America that were keeping you locked down so that you could not grow, you could not make money, you couldn't buy a house, you couldn't get a job, and someone just had told you it is what it is, how would you feel? Those systems, the systems of oppression, aren't systems that were downloaded from on high. They are systems that were put in place by people in power. Somebody say amen? So something even as monolithic as systemic racism isn't a matter of it is what it is. It has been made that way by people in power or by people who chose to take the power they had on hand. And so when you take figures like Martin Luther King and you take figures like Malcolm X and you take figures. These are not people who had immense power at the time. What they did was they decided that it is what it is, just simply wasn't going to cut it. What they said was, I'm going to make what I can with what I have on hand. Somebody say amen? And that makes them look a lot like God who took dirt and created human life, who took nothingness and created existence, who took death in his hands and made life eternal. It is what it is as a way for you and I to quit on the journey that we have been placed on. It is what it is as a way for you and I to divorce ourselves from the actual divine roots of our personages, that we are not people who simply accept what is given to us, we make things good, we make things new, and in so doing, we participate in the story that we've been invited to. Mary could have said no, because she didn't understand how it worked. But she said yes, so that she might participate. It is what you make of it. And what she made of that moment was an opportunity for hope to be born into the world through her very body. Somebody say amen. So it's not always uh, a matter of kind of uh, grand stories. But if you look at this, if you look at the passage here from Genesis, this is our scripture passage. Then God said, let, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and the livestock and the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. The massive difference, one of the massive differences between humanity and every other creature on the planet is this capacity to destroy and make new. In the way that we do. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God who created them. Male and female he created them. Yes, this is a massive grand idea. And it does take place. And it does participate in these massive grand notions. Like systemic racism and global poverty. It also takes place in granular places. If you go to this next frame. Like Legos. My son got Christmas Legos again this year. He's, kind of, he's not like a Lego nut per se, although he does get nuts about it. He's, a little, he's kind of a Lego fan. He's 11 now. Um, a number of years ago, he was uh, younger. Again, math. Uh, I think four, maybe five at the point of the story. And he had, he had asked for and received uh, for his birthday uh, the Lego Desert Rally Racer. And if you're a Lego person, you know the Desert Rally Racer, it's a pretty cool car. When he got the thing, we started building it, he and I, it was kind of a father-son you know, hangout moment. And we, we are like you know, eight, nine minutes into the process, which is like they normally take, like you buy the little kits. Because when I grew up, we didn't have kits. We just had like just the bricks. And then you use your imagination and all that kind of stuff. But you buy the kits and they're like 700 bucks or whatever and they take like 10 minutes to build, right? It's a great investment. And we're like eight or nine minutes in this process and we're stuck, like we can't, we can't move on, and, and because, like, we we can't find these pieces. And so I thi- I figure, because, you know, you tear open the bags. I'm like, well, you know, and I do the thing. If you're a parent, you understand you've seen this move. I'm on the carpet, like, looking for, just scanning for anomalies. I think well, maybe it's not, okay, then the, maybe it's in my pocket. Like, I'm, you know, I'm ADHD. I just put stuff places. So I'm looking at yesterday's paint. I can't find the... It turns out, and I did not know this at the time, it turns out that once in a while, Lego will send out these kits without all the necessary pieces. They'll just, like, because they measure them by weight and not by, like, the particular... So once in a while, you get a kit that doesn't have all of its pieces. I didn't know at the time that you could, like, go to lego.com and, like, order the piece. So we were just sad. (laughs) We were just bummed out. That was it. So it was like, buddy, we don't have the pieces. And my son... My son did something very important in the moment we recognized we didn't have all the pieces. He walked to the kitchen. He got himself a glass of water. And he walked over, sat down on the windowsill, and just stared out the window, drinking his water. It was actually raining. It was perfect. It was like this Enneagram 4 moment, just staring out. He, like, he just let himself get sad because when the plan falls apart, watch me now, when the plan falls apart, we experience sadness. We make plans, somebody say amen. They don't work, somebody say amen. And we get sad, somebody say amen. And if I don't give sadness its moment when it shows up, it will steal it from somewhere else. So my son gave sadness its moment. And decided to join him, so I went and got my own little water, sat down in the window, stared out the rain with my son. (sighs) And once sadness had its moment with us, I was kind of thinking to myself, like, well, I'm having too much fun to just quit. So I went downstairs, and I got this bag of my old Legos, and I brought them upstairs, and I started sifting through this bag. And my son's like, what are you doing? I'm going to keep building. He's like, really? I said, yeah, we'll see what happens. So, like finding Legos that are roughly the same size, same color, we start kind of putting them on and like it doesn't work. And so we have to disassemble the thing and then we put them on and this one kind of works and then you have to replace this one. And then, like, eventually we built the thing that was, it was not the Desert Rally Racer, it was the McRoberts truckish spaceship thing. And of all the Lego pieces that he's built, there are two that he still has in his room because he builds them. And he has them for a minute and then he disassembles them and builds them and does other things with them. He has two that are still assembled. The one is the Millennium Falcon because that thing is rad. And the other is the McRoberts trucker spaceship thing because that thing is special. And it's special because it looks like we did it. Somebody say amen. I'm 99% convinced. In fact, I'm like 175% convinced. That God Almighty is just not, con- He's just not concerned with you getting it Right? <laughs> just not concerned with you getting it right he is concerned with you being in on it god's not looking look including you into the work that god is doing in the world so that you would nail it and get it right that's just not the thing god wants you to participate so that you would get your fingerprints on the work around you you would see yourself in it because he sees himself in you can i say it again God's not interested in you getting, in, getting things right. He wants you getting involved. He wants you to get your fingerprints onto the work that God is doing in your neighborhood, in your life, so that you would see yourself in it because he sees himself in you. So what happens when the plan falls apart? Because it's not just that, like, like, the plan falls apart. It's like all plans fall apart. <laughs> Somebody say amen. Like all of them. So what's it look like for the plan to fall apart? What's it look like for Jesus? So here's, this is uh, another text we'll dig into. Jesus had a plan. You guys remember this? Jesus had a plan and he assembled some people with him. Do you remember? He, He gathered some folks really specifically to live this life with him. And do you remember that one of those disciples decided somewhere in the midst of that, that he would no longer participate, but he would kind of do his own thing. You remember Judas betrays Jesus. Everyone remembers this. So what happens when that plan falls apart? Here we go. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And with his brothers, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about hundred and twenty, and said, "Brothers and sisters, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, and there he fell headlong; his body burst open, Merry Christmas, uh, and all of the intestines spilled out. This is being read in a church." There's just some gross stuff in the New Testament. His intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language. And I don't know how to say this exactly, but but I believe it's Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men Uh, who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men. Joseph called Bersabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas has left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. This moment is, uh, again, scandalous. Jesus picked 12. At the point at which Jesus was crucified, there were 11. And when they gathered after the resurrection, there were only 11 out of the 12. If you're looking around at the time, you're like, the plan didn't work. It's only in part. I don't know if you do, much the in the math, but like, you know, 72 out of 74 Legos is like 97%. 11 out of 12 is like 92%. I did pretty well. When the disciples look around and they figure out that, like, you know, well, we have to do something, they're like, "Well, okay, what we'll do is we'll we'll try to we'll pick someone who's been around a long time. So then that pairs it down some. We'll pick then of the people who've been around a long time who was an actual witness of the resurrection, and that pairs it down some. But they still couldn't choose between the two. And so what they did is they cast lots. That's like flipping a coin. It's like doing this." Imagine being Matthias, like all the other apostles were chosen directly by Jesus. And Matthias is like, I want to bet. And I got in. (laughs) Matthias is no joke. The apostle who like would go, he's like, we need sandwiches. Matthias, that's you. That was him. But what they did is they got creative. They're like, what do we do with we have on hand? Jesus picked 12. We don't have the one that he picked. So what are we going to do? We're going to do the best we can to kind of do the math. But then eventually we just have to make a decision. They flipped a coin. And they did what they could with what they had. And they trusted. Watch me now. And they trusted that the best they could would be received by God in grace and in power and that God would continue to do a beautiful, wonderful work in through and among them. It wasn't about getting it right. It was about participating and doing the absolute best they could and trusting the rest to grace and to the power of Christ. Oftentimes, tell me if you like me in this way, I get so hung up on the pieces that I'm missing that I don't recognize how much good there is around me already. Like, I'm the person I'll invite 10 people to the party, and I'll notice the three that don't show up. And, and like, it's great that the seven are there, that I'm really, but I'm really bummed about the folks that didn't show up. Anybody with me? When you and I struggle in life, this is not true of all of us, but it's true of a lot of us in the room. When you and I struggle in life, when our plans don't work out, we normally don't get D's and F's. We normally get B's. And, and like low A's somebody say amen we're normally functioning in our life somewhere around like 87 to 92% we're doing really well and all of those ways in which we're doing well should serve as evidences that God's got us and maybe the rest of it isn't a matter of us waiting for God to fill in the rest of those pieces and bridge the gap between 92 and 100 maybe that 8% is the place where God says something along these lines what do you want to do with that? You look around your world, your neighborhood, your own life, and you notice there's some pieces missing, some things that are not coming together. And you're waiting for me to do a thing really special to like make it super duper clear to plug in the pieces so that it looks the way it does on the box like Legos. What if instead I said to you, I'm not going to give you one of those pieces. You are one of those pieces. What do you want to do with this time? What do you want to do with what you have on hand? And how's it going to look like when you do? Um, last story, and then we'll, um, we'll go to communion. And this is the story that like the impetus for this whole project. I wrote a book, um, on this whole uh, topic that is literally called it is what you make of it. It's like the whole theme of the thing. And this is the story that like, it was the impetus for putting the whole project together. I do some jogging. And when I jog, there's a park near my house and a Creek that runs through the park and when it rains, like it has recently and this is how happening right now um, there's a part where like, the trail crosses the creek, but when it rains, it, it's too, it gets too wide to jump, or at least for me, some five, six in Scotch-Irish. And so what, like, when I would jog after the rain, I would come, come up to that, that part in the trail, and I would have kind of a choice to make. I would either have to like, get my feet wet and then like, slog back with like, you know, achy cold feet, or I would have to turn around and go home. Um, a number of years ago, as I'm jogging out there after a rain, I come up to that part of the trail and I know this is how it goes. You get to the trail and then you have to turn around and you get your feet wet. But as I got closer, I noticed that somebody had built a bridge. And we're not talking about like a small little bridge. I'm talking like, like six, seven feet across with an arc. It was like this beautiful Work. And it's like a mile and a half off the road. Like someone had lugged wood and nails and material out there and like done a thing. It was really impressive. And I could not wait to tell my neighbors and friends. So I ran home and I was like, there's a bridge out there, folks, what are you are talking about? No, I'm serious. There's a bridge in the middle of it. There's a, a big bridge. So a few days later, I'm out with some people and like we're jogging, walking up to this part. Do you know in horror films or murder mysteries where like, There was a dead body, but then when you get back there with, like, there is no dead body, and they're like, there was a dead body. It's just like that, except this is a bridge. Look, we get there, and the bridge is gone. And the folks I'm with are like, are you sure? I'm like, no, it was here. And as we look around, it wasn't just that it was gone. We see these, like, pieces of the bridge. Some over there, some over there, some over there. And someone had showed up. And ripped the thing to shreds. And my wife, who was with us, said the thing out loud that we often say, why do people do these things? I don't know. So jogged home. Two, three weeks later, after a rain, jogging out there, come back up to that part of the trail, and there was a new bridge. And as I got closer, I noticed that it wasn't just entirely new, but like some of what the the bridge was made up of the old pieces. Like whoever that person was, like came out and was like, I saw what you did. And I'm going to take the pieces you left here. I'm going to build something new with it. Somebody say amen. And they built this new bridge. I was like, that's so rad. And it would be so cool if that's how that story ends. But that's never how that story ends. Because a couple days later, I went back out there and the bridge was gone again, gone. And this time, I'm looking out for pieces. There are no pieces. And so I look way up, about 400 feet up the creek. And this person, I'm assuming he's the same person. I don't know. Had gotten out there. They knocked the bridge over it and like, dragged it way up the creek. So now the water worked its way around the around the creek and made this big, sluggy mess of the area. And I was like, "Wow, what a jerk." <laughs> and then it sort of struck me that I was just watching this thing happen. It was affecting my life, like it changed the way I lived. It was impacting me, and I, but I was just watching it. It starts to sound familiar a little bit? I'm just watching the drama play out of creation and destruction, of love and hate and light and darkness. I'm just watching, it's affecting my life, but I'm mostly bearing witness to it. I'm just watching from a distance. And then it hit me, I'm like, maybe I should get involved. And it took me, I don't know how long, um, to grab that thing and drag it back, like 45 minutes. And it took me another 15 minutes or so to pick it back up and put it in place. But in so doing, I entered into the story because it was my turn. Somebody say amen. It was my turn. I had a part to play. I could have said no just like Mary. But what I recognize is like, maybe this whole like, Christ in you, the hope of glory thing is the thing I get to choose to enter into. And like, I can't build a bridge, but I can drag one back. (laughs) I've got a part to play. This is how the book ends. It took me about an hour and a half to pull the whole thing back to where it originally been and another 15 minutes or so to get it back upright. I didn't get to finish the four-mile jog I'd planned to do that day, but I might have become the first bridge fit athlete in North America. I was soaking wet, caked in mud, and smiling from ear to ear. I couldn't wait to tell Amy to check it out, which we did a few days later. And this time, when we back out to the trail, the bridge was there. In fact, as of this writing, the bridge is still there. I ran over it this morning. And as happens every time I take the three or five steps it takes to cross it, I experience the pride of knowing at least for now I had helped to beat back the looming and intimidating shadows that often attempt to turn us back from the path we are on. I've come to believe that's all there is when it comes to sin and evil. I can't explain it away and I don't think I'll ever chase it out of the world or around me, much less out of my own soul. But what I can do take a deep breath, stare at the seemingly relentless tide of ruin and decay in the eyes and say, you won't win. Not because I'm stronger than you, but because I'm more committed and more resilient. You will not outlast me. If you tear it down, I'll just rebuild it. I'll use what you leave behind and I'll add to it whatever I have I care more about what I make and the people I'm making it for than you care about tearing it down. You will not outlast me. And when my strength runs out and my legs are weak and my hands don't work the way they used to, I hope and expect that someone else who has seen the decisions I've made and been inspired by the way I've lived will take my place. You will not outlast us. And more than all of that, I sincerely believe the one who created all things, who holds all things together, and is making all things new, the same one who lives in me will do what was promised and finish the good work begun here, in me, through me, and around me. You will not win. At the point at which Mary said yes. She did not know how it ended. Somebody say amen. What she simply agreed to was, I don't know how this works, but I'm going to trust there's good on the other side of it. I'm going to just take a wild bet that culturally, institutionally, and personally, that's a bet a lot of us are facing a lot of days. I don't know how this works out. I don't know if this works out. I'm not sure what to hope for. So let me announce to you this morning what was announced to us over the course of the entire Christmas holiday. This is what Paul said. Christ in you is the hope of glory. You're the thing. You're the thing. Christ in you is the hope of glory. We get to see these battles, these forces at hand, and they often seem too big. Sometimes they're internal, sometimes they're external. It's institutional pressure. It's social pressure. It's financial pressure. It's darkness in and outside. And I'm convinced that what God has done in response to that is to insert you into that story and simply said this, I've got you up at like 92%, and I've got you, and I always will. And I want you to take a look around what you have on hand, what you've got in you right now, and I want you to make some decisions because your fingerprints are going to be all over what the future looks like for your neighborhood, for this church, and for your own life. I want you to see yourself in the way things get fixed and the way things get better because I see myself in you even the way things are now. So as we go to this time of communion, if you don't have your communion elements, you can either go to the back or Stephanie will be bringing them around to you if you just put your hands up. I like that we do this regularly here. Uh, if you're not familiar with this thing, you, just, you tear open the top part. There's a little plastic part that's got away from the top and then you tear up the bottom part, which is where the juice is. But I like that we take communion. I like what it does is it says that we take this into us. That we participate in the story not by just like reading and bearing witness to it from a distance, but we actually take it inside us because it's who we become that just might be the key element of how this thing plays out over the course of time. On the night that he was betrayed, <laughs> and folks looked around and wondered what was going to happen next on the night when he was betrayed because they didn't see the crucifixion coming. They certainly didn't see the resurrection coming. On that night he was betrayed He broke the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup, a cup he was willing to share even with those who would betray him. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. When you drink of this, drink in remembrance of me.